0: This is an interview recorded with former Douglas Aircraft and North American Aviation test pilot Scott Crossfield in Washington, D.C. on May 8, nineteen
1: seventy-nine. I defined it with the X-4, but it took some very careful. I mean, you have dancing scene. around mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On the, mm-hmm. side this, is on the night. you Fine, and um. fish. Can you
0: just give me a bit of a, an introduction? You you were an ex-Navy flyer, yeah. weren't you, uh, before you joined NASA?
1: Well, I learned to fly before World War II. The mm. And then in the World War II, of course, when the war came on, there was no choice, no mm. real alternative mm. but to go into flying. So I joined the Air Corps, but they were so loaded with students, I switched to the classes. Navy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, I spent... Came out last Spring night. of forty two well, until well, last the last winter, winter of forty five in the Navy most yeah. of that time was uh, a fighter obstruction. Gunnery bombing Corpus Christi. And he works mm-hmm. on that staff. And then was shipped out as a dive bomber and managed to switch that That's back that. to fighters and was in the uh-huh. Hawaiian Islands getting ready for the Japanese it's invasion the and dropped line, the bomb. So right. I never mm-hmm. saw a mm-hmm. shot fired mm-hmm. in anger in four years of acting duty. And that's my military career, yeah. after yeah. that I was in the Steve. reserves and did some stunt to team Steve. work yeah. and mm. things like that. But, uh. plans to
0: before you, to you came on to these, design these design rocket design plane projects, projects, because you flew the X-1 as well before the five didn't you, mm-hmm. uh, your experience had been limited what, to
1: Corsairs, uh, Corsair or fighters, is that I about the highest performance it. airplane you flew? Well, until I went to it's the NACAS, 6s and Corsairs had been the highest performance. Mm-hmm. And then at the old NACA, the first work I did was on a straight-wing YF-84, mm-hmm. and then the D-5581, yeah. and then the, in the order, I believe, then the X-4, and mm-hmm. maybe the X-1, I don't know what order. And then the D-5582 jet and rocket version. Mm -hmm. I never flew the ground-launch version, only the air-launch version, Mm -hmm. 975 and Mm 974, or 145 and 144, the NASA numbers. And then the all rocket skyrocket, and in there the XF-92 and the Mm X-5. I flew Mm -hmm. all of the Mm -hmm. research Mm -hmm. airplanes, which Mm -hmm. would have been Mm -hmm. six... Well, there were twenty-five versions of nine airplanes. Yeah. Sure. Twenty-five variations of nine airplanes. Of those nine airplanes, the yeah, well, two I the didn't fly yeah. were the yeah. X-2 the and the X-3. hmm Instead of having... Now, why did I pick nine? Yeah, there was the X-1 through... The, oh, the X-1 through the X-5. The XF-92 is six, the two D-558 airplanes is eight, and the X-15 is nine. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. When you came on to um, well, test flying,
1: <coughs> it was quite a quantum
0: jump in performance, wasn't it, from your, your regular flying? Or do you, you graduated uh, through the, the F-84. Uh,
1: yes, it was, but if you remember, in those times it was for everybody. Mm. You know, there was... Uh, First Propellers to jet was jets was uh, to a couple hundred miles an hour, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the altitude certainly was a, a big jump. Get, a and, and there weren't all that many people that had exceeded Mark no one when I did, which was first in the X-1, which would have been 1950, yeah. 51, I've forgotten which. Well, that was one of the And I but bet C-6 there wasn't... Few a few dozen of the most people mm. in the world mm. have gone mark one, you so see, that it wasn't uh, yeah. all that much of a jump for me uniquely. Everybody yeah. was making a pretty good yeah. yeah. jump. Yeah.
0: I think possibly the the, the, the biggest uh, experience for you, perhaps, was not so much the difference in performance, but the, the problems you were having with compressibility and what it did on aircraft performance and flying, flying capabilities.
1: Well, almost all of the... Early 50s, from 50 to 55, was dedicated to transonic and relatively low supersonic but flight, which with good. all of these compressibility yeah, effects that we've had to work with. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whether they be drag or performance or oscillatory yeah, problems good. and that, they're largely <laughs> stability and control <laughs> I, I problems, I'm aileron mean, okay. reversals, I'm not and, uh, for pitch ups and instabilities, control right. effectiveness. Right the changes, mm. trim changes, all, all of right. those things that were typical of the thick airplane, which our first transonic airplanes were. The thick, well, thick wing sections. Thick wings, thick mm. fuselages, blunt corners, and that sort of thing. Mm. Mm. Today, a modern airplane, you can't tell when it goes supersonically, really, from the handling of the airplane. But in those days, you could. Mm. Mm. We would dive, for instance... Uh, a, uh, a P-51, I think the fastest um, we got it was .83 Mach number, but at 7.2 it was beginning to lock up tighter in the drum. It wasn't a flying machine, it was a projector. Very stable. The hinge moments were so high that you could use both hands and just stretch cables rather than remove surfaces. Fantastic. And we did that we put a glove on a P-51 wing and mounted right. a half model that's on right. that glove. And by going that's above right. about 7.4 Mach number, we could get transonic and supersonic speeds on that yeah. bump. And that's the only transonic data we have. You had no wind you, tunnels no, up there that would go? No, there were right? no transonic wind tunnels in those yeah, days until about 54 right. or so, mm-hmm. when Stack came up with a slotted wind tunnel. So we had no data through the mm-hmm. drag rise and through this... Uh, Mm. Stability change and all these trim changes and all of these things. So the only model data we had, which wasn't very good because of the tremendously low mock was what we got off of these half models, about this big mm. Mm. on the, uh, about the size of model hand, on this, this swing tip. Yeah. And it was then that we began to really poo-poo all of these claims that came out of Britain and out of the U.S. and France of having taken propeller airplanes up to or approaching Mach 1. There's just no way. Mm. Because we would go to 45,000 feet in this P-51, spend minutes getting to its maximum speed, do a split F and a full-power dive, Mm. and the most we ever saw was .83. And that's a long way from Mach 1. I there's just no way to get an airplane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, mm-hmm. really, the
0: um, first uh, attacks made on it were the, the, the rocket ships weren't they? The air launch ones with rocket power that could build up yeah. sufficient thrust mm-hmm. to overcome the disadvantages of the aerofoil sections. Of well, those of
1: course, the X one, and, and that was a, those were relatively thin wings. Those were ten percent wing on the first one and on eight the, percent on the second one. And it was just had the thrust to weight yeah. ratio that was essential yeah. to get up to speed. flying then around 65, 7,000 pounds your plans of were thrust, about weight about 7,000 pounds, not a g of thrust. Mm-hmm. Very short duration, and uh, oh, exactly we didn't have the thrust available <laughs> in other airplanes. <laughs> yeah. In the F-86, within well, a couple of weeks of diving yeah. through Mach 1. Mm and then everybody was finding a way to push the swept wing airplanes yeah. which would made swept wing mainly just to get up to nine tenths or so mm-hmm. and so uh, exceeding Mach 1 but in those airplanes it was, you knew it when you exceeded Mach 1 you went through the trim change, you went through the so-called well, tuck uh, well the well jump began. on the, on the uh, altimeter <coughs> and the little one on the airspeed but it wasn't all that consequential. It got very okay. commonplace, <laughs> mm.
0: and it was quite once you'd actually got through it and you were supersonic. Everything evened up again and settled down. Did it?
1: Or? Yeah, it's a whole new regime, but sure. things are fairly consistent. And very it isn't until you done get done. out towards all Mach numbers of two and a half or three that we began to run into severe stability problems again. X one, X one, how are things with you? A, B, and D series, how are things with and the X one E and the. Uh, X-2, of course, crashed for
0: those reasons. Can you take me through the um, stages of, of um, the X-1 flight, for instance, um, the airdrop? I mean, you you were carried up,
1: the machine was carried up in the belly of a B-29. Has it been a real problem? It can, then, but all of that's pretty well handled in Dick and uh, books. He, you know, he that. He just chronicled all mm. that happened. i got a lot of
0: his stuff. I was just wondering if um, you can give me any sort of personal angles on the...
1: Well, the personal angle is that it was in that era that we really made well, an engineering discipline out a Artists, flight test. Only probably the old NACA ever, ever done it. And we designed flight test programs as carefully as you'd design a wing spar. Mm-hmm and hewed to them, and I think that's probably the only reason that the NACA for, what, Mm -hmm. 30 years now, with these very high-performance research airplanes, have lost only two pilots. I understand. And that was not, you know, that's pretty good for Edwards because there were 17 people killed in two years out there, but no NACA people. I've never lost a pilot in civil life. Uh, So, preparing for those flights is is really a thing of days and even weeks ahead of time to lay down how fast you're going to approach your problems, what you you anticipate they are, how carefully you're going to probe each one of these to see how much is going to bite you back. Mm. And then, uh, as far as the mechanics of the systems goes, it really was as much... There's no books on it, huh? There's no handbook on sure. the X1. Mm-hmm. In fact, the configuration might be a little different every time, depending upon the, uh, you know, what, what was fixed, because with no spare parts. You improvised, fixed, changed, made your own parts for them. Mm-hmm. All those are a that one. So the. Uh, the mechanics of the airplanes were precarious, we used dome-loaded regulators to regulate the tank pressures and the high-pressure X1, and they were mounted in a cup. It had a neural brass knob that you adjust the regulator to feed the high-pressure gas to the tanks. Now, before would be pressures like 310 and 340. 310, I've forgotten which was locks and which was alcohol. And those regulators would never hold they'd drift down, and they'd spoil your flight, so we got so we could figure out how to leave the loading valve leaking mm-hmm. just enough to keep the regulator loaded so that the duration of the run it stayed around three thirty were the kinds of things we had to do. There much ingenuity involved Mm. in all that. Those early rocket motors (coughs) weren't throttleable at all. They were either on or off, is that (coughs) right? We throttled them, but they were never designed to do that. Mm. In this country, I don't know why, but we never really gave credit. The real rocket engine development belongs to a guy named Truax, Captain Truax, the United States Navy. In 1937, he began the development of the RMI LR457911 series engines, which powered the X1, the D5582, the XF91, a couple of F86s, and the X15. Some of the same engines. And by '44, he had these engines operating. You know, I love Chinese food. Now, I don't know why, but we've always said that rocket engines came into being and all that in this country with the paper-clip Germans. But before von Braun ever had a reliable system, we'd we'd flown 250 manned rocket flights with the same kinds of systems, the same fuels, valves, chambers, and that sort of thing. And by then, we were playing with the engines. We're in the D-5582. Diagonally across from O'Donnell which had automatically loaded regulators Why for the low-pressure tanks. Yeah. That was an airplane with a pump mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. rocket Same engine, so teams. you would run 40 and 50-pound yeah. pressure yeah. tanks. Yeah, I had mounted in the cockpit a variable regulator so I could boost those tank pressures. And by boosting the tank pressures, the prices, instead of like 30 and 40, I could go to 50 and 60. Uh, then the pump inlet pressure would go up, and we would get the multiplier through the pump, and we could run up the engine engines. So we ran those 6,500-pound uh, uh, thrust four barrels, okay. uh, 6,000 pounds, 15,000 each. We got to 9,500 pounds of thrust on uh-huh. them. But they wouldn't start at those high thrusts. So we'd start them at low ones, and then we'd start cranking up the pressures, and we would... We would uh, so they were throttleable to that degree. Mm. Mm. And we put nozzle extensions on them, which gave us advantage of this throttling at altitude, and so it mm. did. Uh,
0: the, um, just going on to the control side of these aircraft, they, they were all of the conventional wire cable controls, weren't they? You had no power boosters in those days.
1: All except the X-15. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. and the stabilizer trims. Mm. They were motor-driven. did
0: that need a lot of muscle power when you started getting um, compressibility when you were going R V industry? No, uh,
1: not really. For one thing, we went to a yoke. Mm. Well, we had a tremendous mechanical advantage. The X-1 had a large throw and a relatively small surface. Remember, these All are small things airplanes. The mm. core to that stabilizer. Now, the forces got high. But they never really got, you know, where you had to use a tremendous amount of muscle. And I I don't think I've ever pulled a hundred pounds on Mm. a a yoke. I may have, but I doubt it. Mm. I know i pushed several hundred pounds on a rudder, but that was only momentary. But But the thing was that... Of course, so to double you line. never intentionally wanted to yaw, so only used the rudder in a marginally stable airplane to keep it aligned with mm. zero mm. side-slip. Mm. And roll, we never really wanted yeah. to establish two, other than to get two, roll, roll damping of wing characteristics at various speeds and, and one, aileron power, so roll wasn't a big problem, one, even though it did take a lot of muscle to move the aileron one, at transonic mm. speeds. Mm. So These trailing engines don't like to yeah, do that. One, And with the elevators, we would move the whole tail. The flying tail, which had disappeared from aviation for 20 years, came back with the X-1. When you say it disappeared, who had the old moving tail before that? Oh, hell, way back in a lot of light planes. Really? mm -hmm.
0: Oh, I thought that was a recent innovation, you
1: know. No, well, no, it it disappeared because there was no need for it in the subsonic world. You know, you needed a little bit of trim, and you get that with the trim tab on the surface. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But as I remember, <coughs> I'm not so sure. But what a tailor craft! Trim on, the other end comes on a crank wasn't uh, the whole, the whole tail, tail moving. Mm. And maybe it wasn't a tailor craft. One of those kinds mm. of airplanes I flew mm. once had a moving mm. tail, and then you, for, for uh, trim and, mm. and uh, for dynamic flight, an elevator. And uh, of course, the Wright brothers had an all moving yeah. tail, but that, that's getting <laughs> a little bit <laughs> extreme. Mm. But anyway, so you would continually trim mm. using the motor driven tail. so Mm. With these small that surfaces, which in. didn't have large physical pounds of acceleration, yes. mm. even though they weren't very effective yeah. uh, uh, transonically, you yeah. just, just stay near trim and, and do your maneuvering mm. within well, mm. that throw. So it wasn't that much difference. Because
0: your G movements were not all that extreme, were they, on that size of wing? Oh, well, uh, mm.
1: the CG uh, uh, excursions were small, the G maneuvers mm. mm-hmm. were very large. Yeah. We wanted to get the full range at various altitudes, get the effects of Q, Mach number, altitude, damping, mm. and that mm. right. right. mm. So, so what about some... You would use the stabilizer trim and the elevator simultaneously. It's all mm. very well planned. If you go mm. much over the rocket airplane flights are so short. But you never go down a list of things to do. You memorize that list, and you school yourself before you, before you get into the airplane to do that almost like a dance step from one to the other. And you may not like the way the maneuvers are oriented. Given You change them so that you naturally can go from one maneuver to another without having to stop and set up, because you just don't have much time when you get two and a half minutes of power and a little bit of supersonic glide with rapidly changing altitude, everything's going <laughs> on. <about. laughs> yeah. So... This is what I
0: want to ask you about now, once you burnt your fuel up and you were coming down, um, you dropped like a stone, presumably, did you, or what? Um, you dropped like a stone, did you? I mean, did you have a very high no,
1: no. wind loading on those planes? No, no, no. No, actually, even the X-15, which was highest... are uh, not uh, it launched at around 180 pounds per square foot, which is a high wing loading. But it seems to me it was, i well, say, two thirds of its weight. So uh, it's not been there. They're not tampering with anything except like 60, 70 pounds on landing. See, two thirds of its weight was fueled, so it had to be. So, on the, on the glide, uh, the X-1 was a very honest airplane, fairly high mark? aspect Just ratio, 8-10% thick wing, and no more efficient fairly light wing really. weight. and the X-1 flights were yeah. typically 18 to 21 minutes, there was only about two minutes and of one one power involved in that, right. mm-hmm. so see, you were gliding all the way, so you probably got... Oh, three, four, five additional supersonic maneuvers as you maintain supersonic speed in a dive at high altitude, mm-hmm. say you're 50, 60,000 feet, well, which is mm-hmm. relatively high of mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then you could sustain transonic mock maneuvers all the way down. You work all the way. You're not going to waste that precious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of effort to get one of those airplanes in the air, mm-hmm. so you're working all the way to where you're finally taking low subsonic maneuver and data and, and characteristics when you're getting set up for landing. Mm. Like a couple of times, you know, some of us have always work too long, and I'd be too well set up for landing, crowded too close.
0: And what sort of speed would you stall out at, then, when you touched down?
1: Oh, uh, X1, as I remember, touched down around 130 knots, couple letters or miles an hour, I think it was miles an hour. Mm. The people Air Force was still in miles an hour get in those days, a mm. and uh, it would probably stall... Well, I don't know, but if we think in terms of uh, uh, it had flaps and it had a wing loading of maybe 60, 70 pounds per square foot, so my guess is it would probably hang on down to 80. So you had flaps? 70 80, yeah, oh yeah, so it had a little yeah. flaps. Not much flat. really more for attitude than for additional lift.
0: Going on (coughs) to the, I I, I read a lot of, yesterday, Dick Hallion gave me a lot of material Uh, about the 558 flights. uh, Um, (coughs) I was particularly interested when you started nudging into the top right-hand corner of the flight envelope of the Uh, Uh, 5582, you were getting these wing drops that high-mark numbers, and so on. Can you ta- talk a little bit about... Was oh,
1: this a supersonic yaw thing that, yeah. that was on mm. shell at? Charlotte Bridgman, initially, uh, at about 1-9 or one nine two, mm-hmm. And he got that, and I'm going to guess, around 70,000, 65 70,000 feet, in a pushover at a low G, say, 2-3 tenths. Manufacturing and he went into this yaw thing and startled him, and he came back on the yoke and attempt. But anyway, other airplanes are showing signs of this happening. So here we had an instrumented research tool to look into what was then called supersonic yaw, you know, like everything was going to be the barrier. Mm. Everybody's always got yeah. barriers that we're not going to get through. Mm. Whether they be altitude thermal thickets, Mach one, or Mm. meteorite showers, or radiation, we've always got something that's going to stop us. Well, it was now supersonic yawing, and it became quite a newspaper thing. It answered very well to the equations of motion, knowing the after we learned more about the characteristics of the airplane Mm. at those speeds, it, it was there. It was in the. The stability of the airplane is very marginal. The spring constants are very soft, and you would expect it with that swept wing to get into an oscillatory mode at at those speeds and altitudes. But like everything else, we're working with such vague, real inputs. In other words. In this world of simulators, people think we can assimilate anything, but we can't simulate it until we go out and find out what it is we're going to simulate. Hmm? Well It's the same way with analyzing the equations of motion for the stability of an airplane. Hmm. We can guess what all of these subtle characteristics are and how they go together into the mathematics and the uh, Newtonian mathematics or yeah. the uh, Lanchester's. Uh, so what? Mm-hmm. So we began now probing around those speeds and, well, those and those G's and those maneuvers to see what this was. And of course, we were leery of doing it rapidly. We didn't know if he was in the middle of this instability yeah. or on the edge of one yeah. that would become a yeah. uh, uh, very bad situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we've run into that before. We touch the edge of something, we oh, yeah. go to study, and all of a sudden I we find out we were right on the edge. we get in the middle. We're in a whirlpool. And, uh, so much of my early work was going one 19, 192, 193, 194, and began thinking of two.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and the airplane in no way was designed to even go 19. It took you had to be very careful and not waste one, one pound of energy there. You had a little bit of gung-ho coming into it then, in spite of what you oh, said right. earlier. Yeah. yeah. And we weren't allowed to make records, of yeah. course. So. Yes. And we finally Got a chance to try for Mach two, and we tried four times. Okay, I'll let you know. Uh, claiming that it would be incidental to a, uh, don't a, say a research questions. flight, but uh, and it was. We, we got good, valid data on every flight. Get up to body worked up to nine six, nine eight. I think about five flights there. They're in Hallians.
0: Mm. And and that's when you cold soak the aircraft to get that bit more oxygen in and so on.
1: And when we what? You cold soak the aircraft to get that bit yeah. more fuel on board. Oh, we did everything. <laughs> we waxed it, we taped up cracks, we really cold soaked the darn thing yeah. to get in another 10, 15, 20, 30 mm. gallons of locks and alcohol. We, uh, I even put mm-hmm. a. Shut the door see that it's unlocked yeah that's okay, it's okay i even put a uh, a burn away jettison lines on it that's right, right uh so that after we launched we didn't need the jettison lines that took the and uh and so we put those on to get rid of that little bit of drag. it just barely went over up too. A lot of luck. <laughs> 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 everything worked out perfectly that that particular day, and that's all there was in it. Yeah. I don't think that... I think that you might go after it a dozen times, you'd have a distribution where you'd hit it <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. 50% of the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. if You did everything just right. Yeah. The weather was right, the wind shear was right to give me a little bit of boost. We calculated it so I was coming down out of a higher wind downwind into a lower wind, which gave me a little bit more reading on the Mach meter, mm. so that the, uh, it wasn't Mach 2 over the ground, it was a Mach 2. But that, that came out of the, uh, of the looking at all of the stability characteristic characteristics were beginning to level out above about 1.3 or 1.4 where the transonic influences were disappearing yeah. and diminishing. Stability was diminishing all the way out. If that airplane had gone 2.5, it would have been as unstable as the X1 and the X2. But it wasn't, we never got to where it was totally unstable and this supersonic yaw that came up, we found that it was very sensitive to angle of attack, so we could excite it by going to relatively low Gs or low angles of attack and get readings of it, but you could get out of it by pulling G, which is what you always look for in flight research. If you're going to stick your nose into something, you have to have alternatives to get out of it, like the X-4 had tremendous dive breaks. So we didn't hesitate to probe out towards Mach one, mm. where there were serious troubles with the swallow, and the, mm. and mm. they cut us at that time. Mm. We could always open those dive brakes and back out. And thank God we could. When us. when
0: you say you were pulling G, what effectively you did was to, was to anchor the wings down. Mm. You put a, a bigger load on the on the on the control. Increase
1: the angle of attack and, mm. and change the characteristics. Of the, the st- The ability to characteristics of the airplane improved with increased angle of attack. Mm. And uh, that's not unusual when you're getting into these marginal situations. Mm. Sometimes they get better with angle of attack and then get much worse at higher angles of attack. It depends upon the particular combination of configuration, speed, altitude, damping. Mm.
0: You didn't have any kind of damping equipment to help you get out of these um, oscillatory problems. You know, no, whether it was your or focusing on
1: it. First of the research airplanes that I know of that had any uh, electronic damping is the X fifteen. Mm. It seems to me that there was some plans, I don't know if they ever used it to put a yard on the X two. Sure. But I don't I don't recollect. So you're mm. talking 25, 30 years ago. Mm. No, there was no there was no uh, stability augmentation on any of these airplanes. Now, there was uh, irreversible controls on the X-15 and on the X-F-92. All the rest of them were cable, and, uh... On these,
0: um, the the 5582 flights you did, um, what sort of uh, margin did you have between the, the maximum speed you were moving at and the effective stalling speed of the aircraft at that altitude? How many knots? Well, wide, sometimes,
1: virtually nothing. See, yeah. 60,000 feet, 160 miles an hour indicated is, uh, is Mach 1, and that stalling speed for that airplane was on yeah. fuel load on it. Yeah. So you, you were at Mach 1 approaching the stall, so we had to... Of course, all the flight plans were designed to be within the envelope, depending upon what we wanted. If we wanted to get near the edge of the envelope either way, we would adjust the altitude and speed. Yeah. Because in those days, one of the most int- the, the valuable things was to find these these buffet lines at angles of attack and to find the, the uh, uh, control effectiveness curves through Mach 1 or above. You know, we were really interested in the 8 tenths to Mach 1 area because that's where the the 707s and the comets and those airplanes were going and you could get into terrible circumstance with an airliner. He got its nose down, lost its effectiveness, put in a lot of trim to get the nose back up, and then it slowed down and you had all that control in. It would pitch to destruction. So we had to very carefully review all, all of that area and establish the handling qualities with Morgan and RAE.
0: You were doing this uh, before the, uh, the 707 came into service, so this...
1: Uh, yes, but you know. these airplanes were in military airplanes mm. and these airplanes, and there have been many an airplane that's pitched to destruction just for this reason. A guy would get to high subsonic speeds... The elevator effectiveness is very low, so he's pulling a lot elevator, and to compensate for the lack of effect, and keep the nose from tucking, it's not an instability in fact, It gets very, very stable when there's a trim change. He puts in a lot of stabilizer trim, and finally that takes effect, or he loses altitude, where the Mach number drops off, and now he's caught at a lower Mach number with about five times as much control in. And the trim rates, you couldn't get the trim out fast enough, and very often the airplane would be pitching before you get the elevator yeah. out, and it would pitch to destruction, very.
0: very in, a, in the 60s, a, n- a number of um, airliners, I mean, uh, of all the sweat ones, whether it's the 707, the DC-8, or the, uh, the CV-990s and so on, the CV-990 in particular, I believe, uh, were subject to this in, in yeah. passenger service.
1: And almost all of them had some kind of a mock box that automatically trimmed or warned the pilot or... Mm took care of it. Uh, for instance, on the Douglas airplane, it was nothing more than a darn mox box, box that, that fed a worm-driven trimmer, mm-hmm. as, as you went up and down in mock number, to keep that trim so the pilot wouldn't put it in the, mm-hmm. uh, I've forgotten what they had in the 707.
0: I think they're just flying them slower and lower, aren't they? <laughs> That's one well, to no,
1: them. it was it was part of the certification that, that mm. a pilot would be able to get out of a, out of a high speed dive. See, that was a trouble that these airplanes are so clean. We had it happen this one, whether uh, over Wisconsin or, right, or Minnesota yeah. or something here the other day. You get the nose down, and the speed builds up very rapidly, and there's not enough control to get the nose up to Mm. slow the airplane down. And that G that he pulled, he just got himself in a goddamn graveyard spiral, got that trim in there, (laughs) and really wasn't doing Mm. much Mm. until he got to lower and lower altitude. He finally got such high IQ that the Mach number dropped back, and effectiveness came back. Well, it was a classic graveyard spiral. Mm. It was
0: the a, a 707 over the Atlantic when it first came into service. I think it was on autopilot. Yeah, that wasn't it? one they
1: put into Gander or Goose right. Bay or something yeah. like that, bent the wings on it. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he bent the wings by over trimming at high speed to get mm. it out of a dive. Mm. But it there flipped
0: into this dive, it was on autopilot, wasn't it? I mean, both of you, the, the the 727 the other day, that was on autopilot, and it, and it, um, it fell out.
1: I don't really know. I don't remember enough about that mm. 707 when I know that I ran some analyses on it just to get an idea of what he got. Mm. And when we were half satisfied about what happened, we didn't go into the details. That was for the accident investigating. Mm. But really, that accident was uh, taught us a lot, and that was how contaminated the atmosphere was the mechanics that went up there to get that airplane ready to fly back to Seattle triggered all the radiation detectors when it came through customs and uh, this was the era of the high altitude of the bomb tests when we were putting a lot of garbage up at altitude all of our jet airliners were collecting a tremendous amount of radiation on mm. hot surfaces, on leading edges and hot surfaces, mm. and these uh, mechanics had gotten themselves pretty well contaminated. Mm. Mm. Now this mm. was happening all over the United States, of course, but those mechanics weren't going through mm. radiation detectors as they mm. do when they come through customs. Mm.
0: And, uh, I wonder if we could move now um, to the, T- X- a bit of the, uh, the X-15, because I, I know your time is valuable, and um, the X-15 is possibly the most spectacular research aircraft that's flown, Yeah. Um, if you can call it an aircraft. I mean, it seems to be oh, half yeah. half aircraft and half uh,
1: suborbital space vehicle, isn't it? Um, well, if you call it that, it was the sp- first space vehicle, no question mm. about it. At mm. least first manned space vehicle, yeah. designed for it. So you could almost you could almost say the X-2 was. The X-2 went to altitudes and speeds where it was no longer really. Mm-hmm. Aerodynamic, but the X fifteen certainly did when well, it went to three hundred fifty thousand feet and about forty five hundred miles an hour. Yeah, any questions that I can ask you on? The mm. Well, it's
0: you. You were involved in the early part of the flight. I think you were more involved in the aerodynamic end of
1: the program, weren't you? Well, my involvement in the X-15, I was involved in it for nine years. Mm-hmm. I was in on its original concept and then selling the idea and getting the contract sold, evaluating the contract, and then I went to work for the contract who built the airplane. You moved to North America for yeah. this? Yeah. and I spent three years in the design group as a design consultant on, on the airplane, and then I took it into flight. Test And our contract was to demonstrate that it would fly, not necessarily well, but the systems work, and that the government had bought an airplane with which it could do the research that the airplane was uh, designed for. I had kind of had in the back of my mind that I would like to stay with it and take it back into the research airplane program, but that, that was asking too much. But it, it was a remarkable experience when you think in this day and age. It's very seldom does a man ever this day and age get a chance to be in on the concept, the selling, the design, the manufacturing, and the demonstration of the managing of a new and innovative work. You just, you just don't get those opportunities this day and age. That mm, mm, mm. almost died with the Wright brothers and Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I had that opportunity with the Existing, or I took it and made the opportunity. And it was one hell of an airplane, and I think it was the best of lot because the pilot designed it, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I, didn't, I didn't allow them to compromise in those things that were essential to go out to the speed and performance. Mm-hmm. And that's why that big vertical tail's on there. It just made a rule it it would be inherently stable without augmentation through its entire speed range. And it took a tail darn as big as the wing. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the first flights were, take, were taken at the, you know, the comparable altitudes that you've reached with the 558 and the X-1, weren't they, around about 80 to 100,000
1: feet? Mm-hmm. My contracts... these civilians in this country aren't allowed to make records. Mm. So my contract, North American's contract, which is my contract, limited us to 100,000 feet Mach 2. We couldn't hold the airplane to Mach 2, so they let it out to Mach 3. And so all of my flying was between 60 and 100,000 feet. I think my maximum altitude was around 94,000. Maximum speed was Mach 3. And we didn't deviate from that. And so all we did was demonstrate that the systems would work, the airplane would fly, and and what its basic stability characteristics were uh, at those speeds. And uh, the structural demonstration. Mm-hmm. It was designed. We would learned a lot, so designed to fighter specs. Yeah. And I demonstrated a 7.3 g structural several structural points.
0: Mm. Um, the pilots who later took it up to, uh, what was it, about 350,000
1: feet? 353,000 feet sticks in my mind, mm. and uh, that would have been, I guess, White or Rushworth, I've forgotten which. Mm. Walker Walker went for speed, I think, and White and Rushworth went for altitude, I've mm. forgotten. Mm. Now, maybe that the... that the, uh version with the tanks added to it that Pete Knight flew, it may have it may have gone uh, mm. I, I don't know. I never saw the date on it. But wh- when it reached that altitude, was it effectively aerodynamic or, or Oh no. It was a free falling body in space at those mm. altitudes. No, it was designed in fact it was kind of a <coughs> you know we had a big hassle over the escape system and that <coughs> if you bail out that 90,000 feet on the way out at a Mach number of four, you were going to take about a six or seven minute flight, even if you opened your parachute. There's nothing for the parachute, there. you were going to make a free fall trajectory of six or seven minutes at high Mach numbers Mach three, four, and five. And uh, so the X 15, all intents and purposes, once it went by 200,000 feet, it was a, mm. a ballistic missile and there was no aerodynamics. Yeah. The, uh, It used the uh, reaction control system to maintain position, Mm -hmm. which is really all it did, and and position for re-entry, because on re-entry it could break itself if it were out of trim.
0: Well this is what I was going to ask you about. He uh, he had to set it up uh, exactly to point straight before it hit um, aerodynamic forces again.
1: Actually, it would damp in pitch, say, coming in if it weren't trim Mm. for the attitude with which it started hitting the atmosphere. It would damp in the angular excursions in pitch. Mm. In other words, uh, each subsequent excursion where it's trying to to reach trim Mm. would be less angular excursion, but because of the high rate of buildup of Q, the, uh, the G-forces would diverge, mm-hmm. and so you could exceed the limits of the airplane, mm-hmm. even though it was diminishing in the angle yeah. of attack, and, and of course that was, a, that was the, really the only critical part of reentry, and it wasn't as bad as we'd anticipated. The airplane was really quite mm-hmm. stable, and mm-hmm. with the adaptive autopilot, it, it tended to be help the pilot considerably mm-hmm. getting back back in.
0: But this problem that you just mentioned was that was that the reason behind uh, Michael Adams's accident?
1: No, there was a very complex set of reasons behind his accident. For one thing, the airplane was marching the yaw, mm. and it was of a typical of a uh, inertial characteristics. We weren't too used to. see. had very little rotary moment of inertia and roll, huh? but very high in pitch and yaw, and so mm. this gave us character, yawing and pitching characteristics that we had never yet mm. gotten got mixed up with. The X-4, uh, F-4 was probably, F-104 was probably the closest to this, and it had, and so he came in and he got disoriented. Mm. And when I say it was very complex, the flight plan that he had, for part of the flight plan he used an instrument for one purpose, and then for another part of the flight plan, he would switch it over to use it for another purpose. And this is a flying instrument. And it had the effect that if he didn't really switch his mind uh, of reversing his mm. response or confusing his response to the, to the instrument. Plus, and this is something that I don't know if it's true, but they found that he had had a, a background or history of vertigo. He'd overcome it over the years, but he had mm. So probably it was a combination of the not too good a yaw stability characteristic at the speed and altitude he was at. Mm. Confusion with this instrumentation that he was using because he got way out in the yaw and nobody could understand how he did that mm. unless he was just doing something wrong. And really it's pretty hard to tell except by instruments. When you're way up there, the ground is kind of like a dim... Mm. relief map mm. in front of you, and you. don't have all that much you don't have that feeling that you're going towards a point on the ground. You're just too far away from the ground to get accuracy like a bombing.
0: And your cockpit visibility isn't all that great either from
1: Well oh, it's quite good, except yeah. you can't see straight ahead because the windshield goes yeah. there.
0: You can't turn your head yeah. all that
1: much. Cockpit is just like a big pair of goggles. (laughs) See, you're you're right in there with two big windows right next to your eyes, so the visibility is better than most airplanes, Mm -hmm. except not up and not straight ahead because the windshield goes there. No, I made that thing. I was amazed at how much visibility we did have. You could look down, and because the fuselage fell away pretty fast. Mm -hmm. It was really just like putting a big pair of goggles on the airplane and sticking your head. <laughs> but Mike, Mike apparently got disoriented, and confused, and the airplane broke up in the yaw. This mm-hmm. is my understanding. Mm-hmm. And cracked my neck. I didn't have this belt tight enough, so I hit my head on the canopy and came down. And began to look at it, and all of a sudden, here's an answer. Mm. To this this weird thing that pilots were reporting was happening to them in the Century Series fighters. Or we began to see what it was. And this was when we saw what happened to the airplane, and the first time it had ever been instrumented was the airplane I was in. Now see, here's a complete accident that took us and just changed our direction ninety degrees. Mm and we ran a, a program that entailed something close to a thousand rolls, five flights a day.
0: This happened only in rolls, did it? This, this yeah. Well, again. you...
1: And, and it's typical of one a gyro, you know, say you have a gyro top here and, and you can bump it and it starts to precess and then it tumbles, mm. it's, 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 uh, it's similar to that and in, in it's... Uh, equation of motion characteristics. Mm. It's, it's a coupling of the roll and pitch axis, roll, pitch, and yaw axes where, where rotary motions get transferred in the airplane, just literally goes ass over a tea kettle, And it oh. would happen to the 102, the 106, the 100, and occasionally in the 104. And there had been this kind of a spooky thing described by pilots who had survived these maneuvers, he couldn't describe it. Nobody could describe it. These guys are clean when they have these violent maneuvers, what an airplane does that he observes. They're lying in their teeth, uh, but they would never... and we lost about four or five F-100s, and, and nobody knew why. They went out on a flight and were doing something, all of a sudden the guy spins out in crisis, and he wasn't going slow enough to spin. We couldn't figure out what it was.
0: Was he actually executing a maneuver when it happened?
1: Yes, uh, generally a high rate of roll maneuver, and we were just getting to where we knew how to make ailerons that would give us high rates of roll at these speeds. The F-100 had a tremendous rate of roll. In fact, they eventually reduced the, the uh, roll control power by quite a bit, because you never had any reason to use it, couldn't use it. It also had to do with not having enough vertical tail, which is typical of every new airplane. We never take tail off an airplane, we keep adding it. <laughs> And uh, the directional stability was involved in this. But this is typical of those kinds of days. Here's a thing that had been bothering aviation for a couple of years, and nobody knew anything about it. And then all of a sudden, by accident, we saw a clue, and we drove. it was it was so important that I flew for weeks, five flights a day, as long as we keep that airplane flying, just to roll after roll after roll, and speed after speed after speed, rate after rate after rate, so we could build a history and surround this problem. And we solved it for all of the Century Series fighters. You don't hear a roll coupling anymore. And that's typical of the way things were then, because…
0: What can you uh, do… I'm not completely clear on on, on when you say a roll coupling. What are the forces that actually come into play? And what was it's the It's like clue? a you tumbling gyro. The tumbling gyro I followed, yeah.
1: The clue was that I got a violent couple, and fortunately it was at high enough altitude that the forces on the airplane didn't break it. Yeah. It bent it. Yeah. And fortunately I had an instrumented airplane, one with all the measurement devices on board, so now we had an airplane that had done some mysterious thing that I couldn't describe, and uh, obviously it had done something because it was bent. <laughs> mm, mm. And uh, and so we we reduced all the data and found a series of motions and, and worked it backwards and found out, yes, the airplane ought to do that. With these inertial characteristics and static and dynamic stability characteristics, these are the motions that it'll go through. See, Newton was right. Every, everything follows those absolute laws, even though they get pretty complicated when you get into the equations of motions about three axes. And that lit the light. This is what these Air Force people have been talking about with this F-100, and this is darn dangerous. Now, mine hit at 30,000 feet, but they do an awful lot of their tactical maneuvers then and still do around 20 to 25,000 feet, which is just low enough that they can load up the airplane. And the greatest thing I can describe that motion to is when a, a top couples just before it falls and goes through that violent thing, and, and th- this is a roll-coupling kind of thing, where those inertial forces about the spinning axis, now because it's leaned over and it started to fall and transferred by precession and other axes, and it just uh, no, I thought it
0: was a, it was a sort of a, a yaw strain that in fact subjected the fin to a, an angle of attack uh, to the airflow that it wasn't designed for and it just snapped the fin off for that reason. No, but it's more complex than that. Not
1: the roll In fact, the cure on the F one hundred was to uh, was to just put a, a bigger tail on it. Mm. We tried a twelve mm. percent increase and a twenty seven percent increase mm. in tail area, and that just brought the uh, Constant and yaw are the constant in the yaw or the static stability in yaw into where you no longer could reach mm. this instability where, where the airplane would diverge on you. Other airplanes had other fixes. Some of them had to limit the roll rate, and uh, and it would do it under certain circumstances, not under others. Some mm. were just a training thing. And those characteristics in airplanes are no, it's
0: very interesting because this problem was raised about a month ago. I saw Roland Beaumont up at Wharton and had a long chat with him on the same subject. And uh, he mentioned George Welch and the F one hundred problems then, and mentioned now that in fact with the Tornado, it's it's so set up that you can do a full rate roll with your feet off the rudder bars and the ball stays right in the center.
1: Oh, is that right? Yeah, well, we've learned a lot.
0: So I mean, uh, he told me that, so it's not classified. But um, and of course, the Tornado's got one hell of a fin.
1: Yeah. Well, then, and then that would, that would do, and it would make a barrel roll out of an aileron. roll. They'd replace, because uh, it would develop very little or no side slip. But George Welch, that airplane that he was flying was slightly asymmetrical, and he was going to hellacious speeds in the dive. And the flight before that, and I don't know why they let him go do it again, And George suffered from one disease that test pilots get. He loved that airplane, and he just would not concede that, it, that there was anything wrong with it. And he was getting out to speeds where it wanted to go directionally unstable and where a little asymmetry was causing it to fly sideways, and to keep the ball in the center he was pushing well in excess of 300 pounds on the rudder. Yeah, yeah. And that's just about the design limit for the cable brackets and pulley systems. And. Uh, because when I, when I heard of that, and this was before he crashed, I went out on one of our instrument airplanes to see if I could push 300 pounds. Mm. And I found out that I could push 300 pounds, but to hold it on the ground, that was my tremble level. Mm. Mm. If I was pushing 300 pounds, my leg would start trembling. And mm. with a surge, I could go to 350 or 360. And then, about that time, he was killed and the records were recovered, and he was pushing 360 pounds, I believe it was, and he was a smaller man than I was. Now, of course, in flight, when the adrenaline's flowing, that tremble factor might be delayed quite a ways. I don't know. I've never pushed that kind of looks. Okay. But that was a direct yaw divergence, or the airplane and his putting so much load on it to keep it straight, something broke. I, I After I found that out, I didn't even pursue that one any further. Mm. He was so far out of mm. any design spec that it, it was, to my mind, uh, mm. academic. To yeah. Something had to be fixed, not find yeah. out what the accident
0: was, but fix it. I'm wondering, just, just to finish, if okay. you could tell me a few things about your
1: XF-92 Experience delta flying. Nothing was good about except 72 92. I flew most of the program on the 92, and uh, and it it's just not surprising. The air doesn't like low aspect ratios, high sweep angles, and high taper ratios, huh? And you put all three of them together, and you get the most miserable aerodynamic airplane in the world. And that's what a pure delta wing is it served its purpose in, that we, we learned so much about it that we've found and, and figured a lot of ways to make a highly swept, highly tapered, low aspect ratio wing think it was a straight wing. <laughs> yeah. you know, we put fences and aerodynamic twist and, and, uh, and physical twist in it and vortex generators and variable camber and all of that. And That's really what came out as the 102 and the 106. And the B-58? And the B-58, but they're still very short-coupled airplanes, and none of the flying wing airplanes ever did or ever will be of much consequence. E- even the Swedes had to put that canard on the front of their wagon, you know, to, to take care of it, and un- unless it's going to do something like the Concorde, which is a very gentle and bland kind of flying. It's of no use, and even then, the Concorde drag when there's no maneuvering at high speeds is the trim drag is still very high. But those shapes, in the the ninety two, though, proved to be a very interesting airplane. And uh, I was just taxiing in on the last flight, and it was the last flight for an engine change, the first time we'd ever get the engine to go the twenty five hours <laughs> yeah. between. Uh, between required uh, overhauls, and the nose wheel just began to bend, and it broke, taxing in. We never bothered to fix it. It never flew again And parade. Let me suggest something. What civil military fleet ever assembled, mm-hmm. and was obsolete mm-hmm. because of the advent of rocket and jet engines? We knew there was going to be a tremendous change, but we didn't know anything about transonic flight, and we had no way to find out anything about transonic flight, because you can't, you can't use wind tunnels, the wind tunnels we had available to us in those days. And I'm a wind tunnel aerodynamicist, uh, you know, from Mach 8.5 to 1.1 or 1.2. We had supersonic data and subsonic data, but no transonic data. And, of course, all of these airplanes were heading into this regime, so flight tests was the only way to do it. And that was the birth of the research airplane program. Mm -hmm. This series of airplanes of different configurations and shapes that would allow us to go look. And the only way to do it was to go fly it and measure it and learn from there, because it wasn't until after really most of it was milked out of the research airplanes that Slotted wind tunnels allowed us to confirm it in a wind tunnel, which I always thought was kind of redundant. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, and to do that, because we never knew what we were doing, we had an era where you could do pretty much what you wanted. There there were no experts to tell you you can't do that or you can't do that. The Cassandras were bleeding, you know, as usual. But nobody really knew what we could do or couldn't do, so we pretty much did as we damn pleased. If we wanted to change the shape of the wing, we glued something on it and changed the shape of the wing. And, uh, and and I've listed this. This was to get across an attitude that that let us make this tremendous progress, and we haven't done a thing since 1960 in aeronautics. Airplanes we're flying today are 1950s airplanes, optimized and honed and sharpened with a lot of electronic gear. but. They're still aluminum, sub-Mach two airplanes, for any to all intents and purposes. And to get an idea of what the research airplane program goes, it's one of those little illuminated bits of history that probably we'll never get to do again. Because when I worked for Walt Williams out there, there were 70 people in the whole research airplane program at Edwards. We had 11 research airplanes. And I'd fly the X-1 for breakfast, uh, the X-4 for lunch, and the D-5582 in the afternoon, and we worked. And that's 70 people include, you know, the mechanics, the storekeepers, the engineers, the janitors, and everything. That was it, working out of one little hangar in a butler office building at Edwards. And yet we gathered data and information and knowledge that was unbelievable. But we didn't have this horrendous bureaucratic investigation imposed upon us. We would stay up late at night figuring out how we wanted to do something, and and then we'd just go do it. How
0: would you get away with it?
1: (laughs) Who's to stop you?
0: Yeah, but you got your money from the government, didn't you?
1: Well, not very darn much of it, either. Very little
0: of it. Who gave it to you?
1: Well, for one thing, there was a beautiful arrangement, which, unfortunately, the NASA Act destroyed, and that was the NACA never bought any of those airplanes. They were bought with military funds, and the whole effort was cooperative. We used the military procurement capability to get the airplanes and run the contracts, but for the old NACA. So, one thing, we never spent a nickel except the parts we made. Now, since the airplanes the military wasn't interested in, say the Navy never was interested in the D-5582, except for the brief moment that Marion Carl made an altitude record in, huh? We could do anything we wanted with that thing and the navy's on the side of it got smaller and smaller and smaller, you know, every time it was repainted. The lake bed was wet, and we decided we didn't want to stop the program for the winter when the lake bed was wet, so I myself designed and helped build and helped do the welding and installed a parachutes, a drogue chute system in the back of that thing so we could land on the runway and, and add a margin of safety on the runway. It didn't work a couple times, and we had it, we managed to get it stopped we just went ahead and did things like that. And it was a whole attitude of doing rather than talking about it. This year we have so many people that talk about all the great things, either either against or for, but they just talk. It's just incessant talk and study.
0: Isn't it a fact also that uh, technology
1: today costs a lot more money? It's really not so. It's that our system has made it cost a lot more money. McNamara did that. McNamara, for seven years, spent as much money as the military has ever spent. You know, in his time, he never bought a goddamn airplane. He just ran up the cost of paper studies and systems to make sure he never made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And the only airplane he bought was a mistake, and that was the F-111. It doesn't have to cost money. It's just that everybody gets into the act from, from Nader and Jane Fonda to a bunch of fakes up here on the hill that couldn't find their butt with both hands when it comes to technology. And a popular thing, we had a mm-hmm. few guys here in Congress, like Olin Teague, you know, Mike Monroney and that, that mm-hmm. saw the value of this and mm-hmm. helped push through. But see, there wasn't much money involved. Mm-hmm. Well, relatively speaking, there was. The whole research airplane program cost less than a half a billion dollars. That's Mm. 25 airplanes of nine airplanes, and that includes the whole cost of operation and everything else. Mm. Mm. Less than one Apollo launch, 25 years of the research airplanes, 25 airplanes cost Mm. less than one Apollo launch. And one reason the Apollo launch was so damn expensive is everybody was in the act. With the research airplanes, for some reason or other, we managed to keep a lot of people out of that. When the human factors people moved in, uh, that ran the costs up quite a bit. As a French, we never had escape systems. Any of the research airplanes, by the time the X 15 came along, there was no way but what we were going to have one. And it cost a bundle. Another thing was, it i I described some of those mm. things, and this may be, I'm going to give you that, if you, if it's you can. You, you, you've probably got it's got a, copy in the a matter of the notes. Roads.
0: I see I'm mentioning the B-70 and the B-1 here. Um, can you just give me a few opinions on those? Because the B-70 was a very advanced airplane, I mean, oh, beyond 1960. ten
1: years ahead of the B-1, technologically. Yeah. yeah. And, uh... If it hadn't been for the McNamara's and the Proxmire's, we would probably have a B-70 fleet today mm. of a G or an H model, which would probably be a hell of a good bargaining chip for Carter. And instead of re all the B-52s and… Oh, those are ancient aeroplanes. <laughs> those aeroplanes yeah. are older than most of the people flying them. <laughs> and, uh, They're the best we have, and they're a pretty fine airplane within the limitations if we know how to use them. They're kind of like the infantry; you never get rid of them, no matter how modern the war. But they sure as hell aren't much of a bargaining chip in in, uh, this day and age. The B one. I don't know why, but I never could get the warm feeling for the B-1 that I could for the B-70. The B-70 was a very high-speed, long-range, high-altitude bomber. 3.05, isn't that how fast it went? Something like that. And the uh, B-1 is an aluminum Mach 2 lower-altitude bomber with much shorter legs on it. And it was... One thing it could do that none of the other bombers could do is this low-altitude thing. But when you see the movies of what they're trying to sell it, see how this thing goes over the terrain all that? I'm sure you've seen those movies. The first thing that's got to occur to everybody else is, what airplane's taking those pictures? Mm-hmm. Well, it was an F-111. Mm-hmm. And the whole movie is an F-111 flying formation on it. I don't think he's going to get from Hungary, and he penetrate very far into Russia before somebody's going to be flying formation on him. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I couldn't get inspired about the B-1. It didn't have the legs, it didn't have the altitude, didn't have the speed, and this low-altitude mission would really hinge on having a hell of a lot of them, like cruise missiles. You have to throw a thousand of them in there, hoping 200 would get through. because, And, uh, of course, the uh, phase of the cruise missile was the Hound Dog, and they kind of disappeared, you know. I don't even know if we have any Hound Dogs anymore in the fleet. Not, not to my mind, right. But the B-52s used to carry two of them, and some of them, I think they rigged for four, I'm not sure. Mm. It could do that high-low mission, mm. it didn't have the light mm. the cruise missile had, but yeah. apparently we were bargaining out that, so I don't know what to answer on a B-70. I would have liked to have seen it go. Mm. The B-70 was the last whimper of advancing aerodynamics. It died with the B-70. You can see by 1961, the X-15 had gone as high and as fast as it was going to go. The SR-71 had set it all for military airplanes, and the fighters—none of them are going any faster today. So it was—it was—they'd set it all in 1961. And the airplane, well, the X-15's been retired. The SR-71 ought to be a museum piece. It's still in. And in this uh, sociological era, we're going back to building U-2s. That's what's being built in the skunk works right now. And it's just kind of a caveman mm-hmm. attitude <laughs> as far as mm-hmm. I'm
0: concerned. <clears throat> Could it be that um, speed is outpacing um, human reactions? in the sense you've got a quantitative jump from a two Mark 2-5 two to, a, say, a Mark 3-5 or 4 fighter. What do you, I mean, the, the B-70, fine, it's got to go from A to B and deliver, deliver a load and come back, but an interceptor at Mark 3 or Mark 4. In, in
1: 1938, well, Lieutenant Bill Kelsey, who is now re- Ben Kelsey, flew a P-38 from Burbank to New York at an average speed of 328 miles an hour. And in New York, he crashed up on the landing and made the unfortunate pronouncement to the newspapers, which was lifted out of context, that airplane is now approaching speeds beyond which a man can manage to fly. 328 miles an hour. Well, okay. We've gone with manual mid-course correction to orbital and escape velocities. Mm. Mm. It's all relative, and, yeah, yeah. and to go fast, you've got to go high. And once you go high, they're really, really the speeds are just numbers on a dial. As fast as I've gone, I've never had any sensation of speed because it was nothing that it was relative to, except the Earth down there, sixty thousand or more feet, and, and it looks pretty slow. And even watching from the ground, watching a contrail, you know, it doesn't really look like it's going on. No, I don't think that we've done that. Uh, There is a natural reaction amongst pilots, the F-15 and the F-14 and the F-16 pilots. Because it's fun, are still keeping combat and close maneuvering and and that kind of tactics in their training syllabus, but it's, it's a bunch of baloney. Only the Israelis will do that, and that's because they have 364 and a half clear days a year. They they don't need all of this bad weather capability. Now, our war is going to be fought in bad weather if we get into one. With a Phoenix missile, you can put up 20 targets and shoot at six of them and track all 20 of them. You'll never have to see them. Mm -hmm. You can get in the same sky with them. Mm -hmm. So, speed is meaningless, Mm -hmm. except to stay close enough that you're within range of the darn missiles. Mm And, actually, when it comes to the navigation and the flying capability, we're much more precise today at high speeds than we ever were at the low speeds, Sure. Yeah. unless we were following a river or railroad track. <laughs> 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 and with the, if you say you were a radar man in World War II, had they probably well, done with radar...
0: Yeah. Well, just after, that. 1949 to 51, I was about the time of the Korean War. But that was World War II equipment I was working on.
1: Of course, we still don't have radar that can sti- skin-track very mild traffic, you know, for traffic control, mm. We put beacon on airplanes. Mm. You ask a controller this day to skin-track an airplane, and he doesn't even, you know, he can't do it. Mm. You're pretty archaic Mark III radars. Uh, we skin-tracked an awful lot of airplanes. Mm. World mm. War II and subsequent to mm. What do you mean by skin track? oh you just uh, track on the return from a bare airplane from yeah, the skin yeah, yeah. rather than having put a beacon up there
0: yeah yeah
1: this day and age you there's a lot of places you can't go with so-called modern and very sensitive radar if mm-hmm. you don't have a beacon
0: mm-hmm. it says yeah. hey here
1: I am and yeah. shouts with a very bright yeah. signal
0: yeah yeah
1: and so and the reason I bring that up is we're kind of that follows on with the fact, what I said earlier, the electronics haven't advanced all that far either.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, you've got d- Doppler radar
1: now, and um, We've got all kinds secondary of uh, techniques. Yeah. Transponders. And but you have to have the transponders on board oh, to yeah. track with any oh, of yeah. our current yeah. radar. Yeah. And, uh, except I'm sure the military doesn't uh, have that. They skin track, because mm. the enemy, he tries to hide his, his mm. response, doesn't he?
0: What about the dew line? They must be pretty. Or is it mainly the uh, computer techniques for sorting things out?
1: I I think that all of all of but those antennas, you know, are as big as this building. Mm, mm. You know, that that's the reason, and they can probably see a very very small radar target. I don't know what the size.
0: Well, the resolution must be tremendous with a large antenna like that. Yeah, well, and they got a ha- houseful of power, of course,
1: as well. Well, allegedly they're supposed to be able to lock on, so they can track to a degree to launch some countermeasure mm, mm, and tell where it's going. Yeah. But uh, so if we if we just think in the way our ATC system or well, what we're we doing with electronics, we kind of stopped mm, about mm, Korean War.
0: Mm. No, I think yeah. the most spectacular development of navigation is the inertial. The inertial platform,
1: and we've, uh, and if this GPS comes in, we'll probably uh, obsolete the inertial systems. Mm. Mm.